Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today, we're going to continue on with our series of responding to this Remonstrance podcast on open theism. In their part one, they sought to answer the question, is open theism an Arminian theology? And they don't really do this. They don't really define their terms. They don't explain what something has to be and has to not be to be Arminian. They don't explain what kind of tolerances are allowed. And they don't even consider the fact that in popular vernacular, when people talk about Arminian theology, it's a wide label that meets any theology that is open and relational with God, which God responds to the petitions of his creation, which God interacts, has emotions, stuff like that. That's that's usually the definition of Arminian theology. And they can't even man up and say, yes, open theism meets the popular definition of Arminian theology. Instead, what they want to do is they want to insist on idiosyncratic definitions of Arminian theology. And then straw men argue against open theism, call to heresy and say, oh, we don't like it. So it's not Arminian theology. It doesn't line up 100% with what Jacob Arminius said about other issues. It is, is, is that what Arminianism is? It is? is that what it, you have to agree 100% with every single thing that Jacob Arminius said? And only then can you truly be labeled an Arminian. Otherwise, you're just in limbo. You're not a Calvinist. You're not an Arminian. And so someone believes the future, but they don't believe in provenient grace or something like that. They're, they're not Arminian now. Okay. It's. It's this incredibly arbitrary standard, and just because they call open theism a heresy, these are incredibly biased people, they, they don't interact with open theists. Just because they call it a heresy, they just don't want to include it in Armenian theology, arbitrarily. Because, yeah, they, they don't explain, they don't set up their question, they don't frame the question in a way to deal with this topic honestly. I don't think these are honest people, and let's hear them. Hello and welcome to Remonstrance Podcast, a podcast devoted to the promotion of Orthodox Wesleyan Arminian theology. My name is Vin. My name is Ben. And I'm Jeff. This is episode 16, Open Theism, part two. If you have not listened to episode 15, Open Theism, part one, I would highly recommend that you listen to part one before you listen to part two. Yes. Because I don't know if this is going to make much sense if you don't. Probably <laughs> This this would make no sense if you didn't listen to the part one because part one is so it's it's it has so much good information in it. No. So we're just gonna pick up where we left off our conversation two weeks ago and continue on talking about open theism. The big question that we are asking is whether or not open theism could be classified as Arminian theology. Right. But we don't define our terms, and we just arbitrarily say it's not because we don't like it. Brilliant. Right. And so far, the verdict has been no. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Right. And we really think that we'll just continue to solidify that point here in, in this episode. Right. I figured it would be helpful to maybe just go down a list of some of the modern supporters of open theism. Right. So, so the, the three big names are Gregory Boyd, John Sanders, and Clark Pinnock. Those are the big three. Yeah, I don't know exactly how Clark Pinnock makes this list. Maybe he's more popular than I thought, 
But uh, Boyd is really the biggest popularizer of open theist theology. He's got a pretty big following. People love his books and buy and consume his books. John Sanders is a more scholarly type of uh, approach to open theism who has done a lot of work promoting open theism. Clark Pinnock, though, how popular is this guy? Is this guy more popular than Thomas J. Ord? Or is he more popular than Terence Freethium, right? It... These other people probably could be added to the list, and, and they ignore the heavy biblical scholarship. The Walter Brueggemanns, the Terence Freethiums. Why? why? These, these are heavy, hard, scholarly authors that are well-respected in, in their field of studies. But they're ignored in favor of these other people. But, yeah, and then these guys in this podcast are going to focus exclusively almost on Clark Pinnock. I don't, I don't get it. I've never met someone who says, yeah, I'm an open theist because I read Clark Pinnock's work and that's what convinced me. I, do they exist? And do, does everyone agree with Clark Pinnock's work? I don't get it. Um, also, referring back to the Tim Challey's article that we read through parts of in episode 15, um, John Eldridge is also a subtle supporter of open theism, although Tim Challey says that he... Uh, what, Eldridge? Eldridge, what did he, he wrote uh, Wild at Heart. And I remember I picked up this book, like these guys probably did. They, they're probably in some little youth group, and they're like, let's read this book. It's, it's about how to be a man, like what, Wild at Heart, right? And it talks about God taking risks. And in that section, and I got this quoted on the God is Open website, where Eldridge, he's like, well, God takes risks, but I'm not an open theist. It's like, so this, they're, they're claiming that this guy's an open theist who explicitly says he's not. What is this adding to the podcast, accusing people of open theism? Maybe, maybe these guys are bitter, like from years ago, reading this book, and they were all offended, like, risks, ah, like, like the previous podcast, they're like, risks, oof. We don't like risks. Don't hang out with the local boy who doesn't know the future because that's risky. Now they they said they said they wouldn't let their kids hang out with people like Yahweh in in the Old Testament in the Bible where he takes risks and and uh, has regrets. They're like that's too risky. I wouldn't let my kids hang out with boys like that. It's it's crazy talk, but. Let's keep going. He denies that he is an open theist in some of his books. Um, you may know him as the author of Wild at Heart. He wrote some other books that were really popular, especially in the early 2000s. Um, he has subtle hints to an open theist understanding of God in, in a lot of his books as well. So through the writings of Boyd, Sanders, Pinnock, and, and even Eldridge, this open theist theology is really just creeping into um, popular. Good. Good, good. Here's the thing. All the new scholarly youth, they're not these Calvinists. The Calvinists are the social justice warriors of the world who want to shout down all opposition. They're like, heretic, heretic, off with your head. We don't want to interact. We don't want to debate. We don't want to treat your arguments honestly. Instead, we want to shout you down with names. We want to poison the well. That's what they do. And so this, this new crop of Christians are rising up. Um, they, they're, they're well-read. They read people like Michael Heiser. They read people like Ed T. Wright. 
And it's this, this new narrative that takes the Bible with, with seriousness, right? It tries to contextualize the Bible and understand what it's saying to its audience. Whereas what these guys like to do with their proof texting is they like to pull things out of context, then insist on very concrete meanings of, of very vague phrases. That, that's how these guys do theology. But, but the new generation that's rising up, it's, it's scholarly. And guess what? It, you're going to be overthrown. The Calvinists are the social justice warriors who can't stand in the face of real biblical, critical scholarship. People who take the Bible seriously. You guys, you guys are the mystics who want to spiritualize the Bible and not take it seriously. So I'm glad it's going to be a slow death nail, but it's coming. You're being laughed at evangelicalism right. today and um, and people as, as was mentioned in, in, in the previous episode people claim that open theism is Arminian and it's not because it is not true to the, the and it's not because it doesn't meet our very specific definition although it meets the wider cultural definition but you won't hear us admitting that on this podcast because that undermines our argument of Arminius at all. Right. So Clark Pinnock um, wrote a book called um, The Grace of God and the Will of Man. And in the beginning, and I thought this was really interesting, in the beginning of the book, he writes an essay which he titled From Augustine to Arminius, A Pilgrimage in Theology. And in this essay, he writes about his journey from Calvinism to open theism. But the title is deceptive because the title says, From Augustine to Arminius, A Pilgrimage in Theology. So you'd assume that Pinnock started as a Calvinist and then became an Arminian and stayed there. Yes, you would, because the popular definition of Arminian is someone who just believes God's relational, responds, and is not fading everyone to eternal damnation. It's basically not a Calvinist, not a fatalist, and someone who believes that God has interaction and emotions. That's, that's the normal understanding of Arminian in popular vernacular. And so if you guys can't come to terms with that, you got serious problems. And if you're going to try to force your definition of Arminianism onto authors who use the word and you're going to discount what they mean when they say it and just replace it with with what you want it to mean yeah you're going to run into some issues but the issues are all your own making you being intellectually dishonest right but he doesn't right he starts off as a calvinist and then he becomes an open theist in the end. And it's just, the title itself is deceiving. And I don't know if he's trying to make it seem like open. It's not to people with normal understandings of how language works and the normal definition of Arminian, right? I'm, I'm so sorry that it doesn't meet your very specialized and not defined definition of Arminian theology. Theism is Arminianism, but it's not. And, and even in the essay, he denies um, certain theological teachings of Arminius and certain theological... Yeah, usually like Calvinists, they don't have to agree with like 100% of what Calvin wrote about, right? In order to be a Calvinist, you don't have to do that. And Calvinism as a movement 
grows and defines itself differently in different generations, it, it, you're not tied down to the original author. You're not tied down to uh, having to agree with them 100% on everything. There's tolerances and words change meaning over time. So are you going to deal with this? Or are you going to still build your your world in which language conceptualization works differently that it has to fit to your standards which you yourself you do not define general teachings of wesley right um i read through this i read through his essay um before recording this episode and in the beginning of the essay it's it's actually <laughs> great you read an article before you started the episode i'm glad that you like at least did a little bit of legwork actually pretty good um, his criticisms of Calvinism, I, I agree with. Um, and then he writes about how in 1970, how he had this certain moment where he decided that he was no longer going to be a Calvinist, although up to that point he was a Calvinist and he was just trying to ignore some of the conclusions that Calvinist theology comes from. Right. Um, but as the essay goes on, you see that he doesn't leave Calvinism and become an Arminian, but he continues to go further and further to the left theologically in his pilgrimage. You can see Pinnock's rejection of Arminianism throughout his essay. Uh, for example, he writes how he rejected the Arminian understanding of foreknowledge. So to me, th th that doesn't make sense because... <laughs> I bet it doesn't make sense to you. I grab a dictionary and uh, use common cultural understandings of words. And there's tolerance in words, there's tolerance in labels, especially in any movement, capitalist, communist. Uh, it, it meets, you don't have to have incredibly specific views to be, even the word Christian. Word Christian. Uh, all these people, they define themselves as Christian. Some of them, they don't even like the teachings of Jesus, right? Right? So labels have meaning that's defined by culture. And not by you. You don't get to decide what words mean. And then you don't get to attribute, when other people use those words, your own very idiosyncratic definition. That's not how this world works. The title, once again, is From Augustine to Arminius. But then he writes in the very essay that he rejects Arminius's account of foreknowledge. Right. So how could you say that your journey is from Augustine to Arminius if you're not even adhering? So when he writes that Augustine to Arminius, did he have to agree 100% with everything Augustine said about every issue to write that? Or is your criticism just about this one particular area not consistently applied throughout the whole article? So someone has to like 100% agree with Augustine and then 100% agree with Jacob Arminius in order to put that in their title. Is that what you're claiming? Really? Really, just try try a little bit of generosity when you're reading someone. Try a little bit to understand what they're writing and why they're writing it. It doesn't it doesn't take very much work. Just a little bit of intellectual integrity would be great. Hearing to Arminian theology, he also rejects the doctrine of prevenient grace. I'll, I'll read you a little bit of the article um, that he wrote. He is a all right, so this section it goes into prevenient grace, and it's not an open theist issue. And so when they pull out Clark Pinnock, and they say he agreed with this and this, 
Clark Pinnock doesn't speak for all open theists. Open theism is generally the idea, the rejection of the Greek synthesis of attributes such as timelessness and uh, immutability and impassibility and uh, exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. It's a rejection of these Greek attributes. And for them to pick on this like prevenient gray stuff, open theists can or can't reject this idea of prevenient grace. Open theists can and can't be Pelagians. It's it's not an open theist issue. It, they could fall anywhere on the spectrum. And to straw man quote this one person and criticize this one person and then apply that criticism to all open theists, it's it's not treating the issue with intellectual integrity. So let's let's pretend an open theist agreed with all these other little points your provenient grace whatever your total inability anything you anything you care about very deeply and they agree with all that with jacob arminius except for the foreknowledge issue are they an arminian that 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 should be your question but it's not you're going to take clark pinnock and then you're going to claim all open theists follow clark pinnock i don't think i've i've never met someone who said yeah, I wasn't open theist until I, I met Clark Pinnock, and that's the guy. That's the guy who really did it for me. You know, you could probably find a lot of people like that for Boyd or even Jesse Morrell. You're not going to find it for Clark Pinnock, I don't think. So this this is kind of a weird podcast, and it's kind of they're, – they're not – are they thinking about this when they use this as an example? Are they – are they considering that some open theists might agree with these points? We don't know. But uh, we'll kind of skip forward because their criticisms, uh, it's, it's just not valid. And in theology in depth, because right. if he did, he would find that there is a solid biblical basis for the doctrine of universal prevenient grace. And right. it, it's present. So, yeah, that's what they care about. They're like, oh, universal prevenient grace. Like, okay, open theists could agree with that so are those open theists armenians or it, i don't get it and um in the th writings of arminius and it's also present in the writings of wesley and um you can find it within the scriptures as well yeah so but instead of accepting wesley and arminian theology he then begins to question total depravity altogether and in towards the end of the essay i'm not even going to read any yeah, skip it uh, in the last episode from Stanglin and McCall. Right. Uh, in the last episode. How he disagrees with the theology of Wesley and how he disagrees with the theology of Arminius. But, I mean, it's the classic and historic leftward shift yeah. of theologians who claim to be Arminian and yet reject the teachings of Arminius and Wesley and end up in theological confusion and theological liberalism. Right. Well, like the very you know definition of what we read uh, in the last episode from Stanglin and McCall, right? Where they're defining Arminian theology as anything that's not Calvinist. Period. Yeah, they reject predestination. Therefore, you're an Arminian, which is you know a, a false definition. Yeah, that's a false definition. It's it's just false. Okay. And, and then by the end of the essay, I'm, I'm not even going to read it, but at the end of the essay, Pinnock starts writing about how he questions classical theism, and he goes on how he questions doctrines such as the immutability of God and the omniscience of God, etc., etc. And 
do you guys think God is immutable? He can't change in the slightest in any way. That's God. That's God for you. All right. Um, I don't know. It just bothers me. Why does the name Arminius even have to be in the title of the essay? Right. Why? Just because he considered Arminius's ideas and Wesley's ideas and then rejected them, he's got to put the name Arminius. Yeah, a little bit of generosity when reading other people's works is, you know, it's it's almost a prerequisite to try to understand people in the context that they're writing with the terminology that they're using as they define it and not trying to redefine everything to suit your own predefined ideas about how language should work, right? That's a basic step for communication. It's not to forcibly misunderstand someone who's talking. As in the essay, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but it's, it's a historic problem that still exists today. Well, just to give some further teeth to our argument here, um, as we had talked about two weeks ago in the last episode, um, you know, Thomas Oden gives a very clear opinion in regards to what we're discussing uh, in these episodes in regards to open theism and its supposed relation to Arminian theology. Um, but Thomas Oden gives this quote on the views of Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock in regards to this thought. Oden writes, if reformists insist on keeping the boundaries of heresy open, so as we said, Odin makes direct reference to it as heresy. Uh, he has, says, however, then they must be resisted with charity. The fantasy that God is ignorant of the future is a heresy that must be rejected on scriptural ground. It's a heresy. It's a heresy. Why? Where? How? These people with charges of heresy, they're always like, if you say something I don't like, it's a heresy. It's like, where are you getting your understanding of heresy from? Is it the Bible? So an Israelite back in the time of Moses, hears Moses say that God repented that he made man. He's reading Genesis or something, writing Genesis, whatever. And then the Israelite believes it. He's a heretic for believing the Bible, what the Bible says. And these guys say these anthropomorphisms are condescensions of speech meant for human understanding. So if someone actually believes the condescending speech, they're a heretic. Oh, they're a heretic. Or, or maybe, maybe these guys' ideas, as ancient Israel, they were just very stupid, stupid people. And now we're held to a higher standard because we're not as stupid as those people back then. What, what is this? This nonsense claim of heresy for believing the Bible? It's just absolutely absurd. And they say, we, we got to just reject the face value of what the Bible says about God. And, uh, and if you don't reject the face value, you're a heretic. Come on, grow up. And he gives reference here. Isaiah 46.10 A. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. And he also quotes, Okay, and what is that in context of? That's in the context of God saying what he's going to do before he does it. So God said he's going to do something, and then he does it. And then the people know both that God's powerful because he did what he said he was going to do, 
And that was actually God who did it because it was said before it came to pass. That's the context. This is not saying, this is not a claim about God's knowledge, that God could win trivia contests based on his crystal ball clairvoyance of the future. So Thomas Oden is a terrible at, uh, you know, being honest with the text. Job 28, Psalm 90, Romans. Job 28. Let's pull this up. Let's pull this up. All right. So this is apparently what they're referring to. Job 28:24. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. <clears throat> That's an omniscience verse about eternity past. When he gave to the winds its weight and a portion of the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and the way for the lightning and thunder, he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. This is, this is about future knowledge of all events to ever happen. You guys are nuts. You, you, can you read? That's the question. Are you, do you have basic literacy skills? Can you? Right? And the thing about Job is you always have to be, a little bit skeptical there's these long narrations within it and people always end up quoting people who aren't god and they often quote job's friends who are discredited by god god says these guys spoke all sorts of nonsense about me and then people will quote job's friends as if job's friends have all the theological answers it's like just just use some reading skills when approaching the bible quotes by characters in the text can or can't be reliable quotes by god quotes by the narrator narrator that's what we need to focus on if we want to be true to the text because the narrative narrator is considered accurate and always correct god is considered accurate and always correct the the testimony of man can or can't be correct and job has to make some some what, what am i looking for concessions to god he has to withdraw his arguments from God and Job's friends are explicitly discredited. So be careful when you're quoting from Job. In what context are you quoting? 829 in Ephesians chapter one um, as supporting his statement here. As it has been in the history of the exegesis of relevant passages. This issue was thoroughly discussed by patristic exegetes as early as Origins against Celsus. Keeping the boundaries of faith undefined, Odin says, is a demonic temptation that evangelicals within the main line have learned all too well and have been burned by all too painfully. That comes from Thomas Odin, The Real Reformers and the Traditionalists, uh, published by Christianity Today, February 9th. 1998 all right so you know you go to these proof texts every time people quote a proof text turn to that proof text read that proof text read the context and often the verses they contradict how people want to use the verses and so someone wants to argue that god has omniscient inherent knowledge of all things past present and future and then they'll quote a verse about god watching things as those things happen like, that's not the omniscience that you believe God has. That's not the act of omniscience where all events from all eternity are at the forefront of God's mind and God never acquires information. 
this this is a verse describing God acquiring information. It contradicts what you believe about omniscience. Just read your own proof proof text. It's 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 a very simple thing to do. Is read your own proof text. It contradicts you. It, it affirms open theism. Your proof text. It. So I get frustrated sometimes. It's like you deal with people and you wonder if they have basic literacy. Wow. But he says that keeping the boundaries of faith undefined is a demonic temptation that evangelicals have learned all too well. So we'll draw the line at God's foreknowledge of the future and people who believe what the Bible explicitly states about God, that he repents of his previous actions, that he learns new things, that he expected things that didn't come to pass, that he thought he was going to do things that he didn't do. When people believe that, they're heretics. Instead, instead, they need to look at my proof texts and then discard those proof texts and just believe my theology because my proof texts disclaim my theology and they actually argue against my theology. Like even the Isaiah verses, God says, I know what's going to happen because I'm going to do those things. It's not about everything that's ever going to happen ever. It's about what he specifically told the prophets and Israel that he would do. Those are the things he knows about before they're going to happen. That's the context of Isaiah. It refutes your belief. Read. Open the Bible. Read the context. And don't import your theology onto the text. It, it, it's a simple context. It, I would love a debate where we just go over like a Calvinist's favorite proof text and argue in context how that works towards the argument the author is trying to make. And then my contention is, Pretty much all their proof texts are evidence against their belief. Their systematic theology doesn't work with it. And their proof texts are just pigeonholed into being proof texts because they need something for confirmation of their theology they want to bring onto the text. So they're gra grasping at straws. They'll grab any verse in any context to try to force it into their theology. It's, it really comes down to not even theology, reading comprehension the bible it's when dealing with the bible it's just reading comprehension read the verse in what context is the author what are the what are they trying to do with the context are they going to try are they trying to convince someone of something why are they trying to convince that person of that thing how are they going to try to convince that person of that thing what, what's the context and have been burned by all too painfully wow Odin is usually quite guarded yes. in his language. Yes. But he really comes out full force here. He does. Yeah, this is something you see with the social justice warriors also. And this is why these Calvinist types, uh, these people who are against open theism, they're the social justice warriors, right? And they hit hardest when people bring up statistics and facts and they'll push back more vehemently against those types of individuals. They'll say, oh, you want to quote uh, actual rape statistics on college campuses to overthrow my, my uh, myth that I'm perpetuating that college rape is the same, it's same rate on college campuses as it is in third world countries such as Zimbabwe. It's like they, they want to throw out critical thinking. They want to throw out scholarship. And they do throw do so through denunciations. They don't deal with opposition because the opposition hits home. Whenever they interact, 
they get defeated. And so they have to turn to this name calling, this emoting, and uh, they're on the run. They're on the defensive because they could see that it's, it doesn't work out to their benefit to interact. So you'll, you'll have their protests. You'll have the Bruce Wares trying to kick open theism out of, out of uh, ETS. This, this, is, this is their tactics, this snowflake social justice warrior tactics. And Odin, Odin, it, you know, he, he might interact just fine with other people who aren't open theists, but open theists hit home. So it hits him on an emotional level. Like, I talked to this Calvinist. He's like, people, I, I interact very nicely with atheists and Mormons and LSD people, but I don't have such interactions with open theists. And it's always pretty hostile. It's like, well, me too. I, I have pretty good interactions with atheists and Mormons or whatever, but not Calvinists. Why is that? Why is that? Probably because it hits home when I'm trying to talk the Bible and reading comprehension and they want to talk importing theology onto the text and they don't like it. And so usually the conversation comes down to me accusing them of not being able to read, which which is a blow to their ego and it's a blow to it, it, it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. They, they don't know how to interact with someone who treats the Bible more seriously than they do, who wants to treat the Bible in a textual critical manner, right? So, you know, if, if they interacted with someone like uh, Christine Hayes or someone who's secular, who knows the Bible and doesn't consider them an expert on the Bible and who knows more about the Bible than they do, their conversation would probably not be as nice because a lot of times these atheists are dealing with Calvinists and they'll treat the Calvinist as if the Calvinist is the Bible expert. And that, that's a mistake. It's, it's, it's a mistake for them to seed that ground to those people that they're interacting with. And it makes the Calvinists, it inflates their ego. They're like, oh, I'm the biblical expert here and you could talk your atheist things and I'll talk all my knowledge about the Bible. Yeah, but when they're dealing with other people who know the Bible more than they do, that those conversations don't go over very well. They don't like it. They can't interact. They don't know how to respond. And when people, they, they lash out when they get into situations that they just don't know how to respond to. It's really funny to put people in those situations where, where they've never been confronted with this perspective before they've never been confronted with these arguments and they just they don't know how to react and so they go into this this kind of a shock yeah uh, it's i always remember i was uh on college campus and and you know i ran the the pro-life club there and and i had these these uh pictures of aborted babies or whatever and and the college feminists they had this big huge line of people out on the streets with these signs honk before abortion rights or whatever and i run out there with my side i just stand right in the middle of them and i hold up this picture of a dead baby uh, of abortion and i just stand right in the middle of them on the street and the girl next to me she's like i don't i don't know what to do i don't know what to, she's 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 confused she doesn't know how to handle the situation and it's 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 funny to see these people interact with these unexpected situations. They they're pre-programmed to only act within their comfort zone. So when you take them out of that, 
then they, they might be confused, shell-shocked, and they might act out. Anyways, just a funny anecdote. It, it was funny. But, but that's why I suspect that uh, interactions go south with open theism more so than if they're interacting with an Arminian or even an atheist, something like that, because their reading comprehension skills, their biblical scholarship is not coming into question. But let's go on. We're at like 37 minutes or so. And uh, with, with editing, maybe 35. But we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up quick, and then, then we'll uh, probably do the second half a uh, different way. And you can see, you know, that this is a this is a point that he wants to make very clear. Yeah, well, you can almost expect it from him, being someone that was such a guardian of classical Orthodox teaching. Right. Because this reach, you know, all the things we looked at in the last episode, you know, reflecting back upon those eight points we had read uh, from Tim Challies. And does Odin? Does he interact with open theists? He, you read his article. And yeah, I probably should have reread it up for this episode, but I don't recall him interacting with any open theistic ideas. It, it's it's a kind of a, a very badly written article. It's very disingenuous and intellectually dishonest. And I called Odin an idiot in the last episode. I still think he is. Uh, I haven't really read anything of his except for this article, and it doesn't paint a very intellectual picture of this man. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm biased. Like the James Whites, the people are like, James White's really good with the King James only controversy. Or Norman Geisler's really good with whatever. It's like, well, I can't take these people seriously because they're not intellectually honest about these other critical issues, about God's nature and character, about reading comprehension in the Bible. They're just they're just dishonest, intellectually dishonest, which, you know, it's it's kills any other work they do. It's like you guys, this this is this is how you do scholarship. This is how you, I can't take you seriously. And Odin, he's no different. Read the article; it's it's a terrible article. It's it's not honest. It doesn't interact with the issues. It does this this stupid proof text thing that we've already covered, which he doesn't understand the context of his quotes. He quotes these proof texts that contradict his ideas of omniscience. It's this is what we're up against. This is what we're up against. All right, so we're going to end this podcast here, and uh, we'll, we'll do the next half uh, next week. Thank you for listening.